Welcome to Act in Line, the podcast of the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty. I'm Caroline Roberts, producer and host. On this episode, we'll first be taking a look at the chaos surrounding Brexit. On June 23, 2016, Britain voted to exit the European Union, but their exit has since been stalled as establishment politicians in Parliament repeatedly ignore the voice of the British people. So what is Prime Minister Boris Johnson doing right now to try and bring about Brexit? And what is he up against? Reverend Richard Turnbull, director of the Center for Enterprise, Markets and Ethics, joins this podcast to help break it down. After that, on the second segment in this episode, I'm excited to bring you a conversation about Justice Antonin Scalia. This year, a new book was released called On Faith, Lessons from an American Believer, and it features many of Justice Scalia's speeches and opinions and even some stories from people who knew him personally. For this segment, I speak with one of Justice Scalia's sons, Christopher Scalia. As always, don't forget to check out the show notes for this episode. The show notes are where we post extra resources for our episodes, including links for books and articles and even some videos we think you'd be interested in. If you like this podcast, please leave us a rating and review on iTunes. This is Reverend Ben Johnson, Managing Editor of Religion and Liberty, our quarterly publication at the Acton Institute, as well as Senior Editor of Religion and Liberty Transatlantic. There are very few moments in history, particularly in a country with the history of the United Kingdom, that could be called historic. Yet we're living through one of those as we speak. Events that are unfolding in Parliament have been without precedent in recent days. Here to discuss those with us is Reverend Richard Turnbull. He's the director of the Center for Enterprise, Markets, and Ethics based in Oxford, and he's been following these events very keenly for us. We're speaking uh, just a few hours after Parliament has been prorogued on uh, Tuesday morning. Reverend Turnbull, welcome to the Acton Line podcast. Thank you very much, Ben. It's a pleasure and a, a delight to be with you to discuss these things. Well, there's a saying in politics, 24 hours is an eternity. We've truly seen the reality of that over the last few days, where every single vote uh, seems to set new ground. Just how historic is this moment that you're living through in terms of what is happening in Parliament? Well, uh, Father Ben, it's extraordinary. Events are moving and changing uh, so fast. One can uh, right, as I have written some pieces for the Acton blog about what's going on, and the picture can have changed completely within the next uh, 24 hours. I think to understand what is happening, we, we do need to stand back a little and maybe just go back to the vote that took place in the United Kingdom uh, in June 2016 as to whether we should remain uh, as a member of the European Union or not. And there were, there were two key issues there, really. One was political, and that was to do with sovereignty and independence. And the other was economic. Uh, how is the economic future of the United Kingdom going to be uh, best served? Uh, and the government of the day assumed that the people would vote to remain. Perhaps the reason we did not was because for the previous 40 years, we had never been asked since uh, 19. Uh, 74, uh, whether we wished to continue to be part of this increasingly uh, centralised and bureaucratic and almost life-absorbing institution. And that vote back in 2016 was itself unprecedented. And it was one of the biggest shocks that the British political establishment has ever received. More people voted to leave the European Union than have voted for anything else 
ever in the history of the United Kingdom. And the reason I give you that background is because I think what we're seeing now is an unprecedented reaction to an unprecedented event. And what we've seen in these last few days, these last few weeks, is uh, uh, the overturning of procedures and precedents in the House of Commons, the use of mechanisms and techniques that have never been used in this way uh, uh, before in order to prevent the government of Boris Johnson uh, from leading us out of the European Union. And for those that claim it's the democratic will of the House of Commons, appear to be overlooking very significantly the democratic will of the British people. And even I, uh, if I may continue in this vein for a moment or two, even I have been shocked by the virulence of the establishment politicians. Uh, nothing must get in the way of the EU project. Can your listeners even imagine what that does to individuals in the country? Uh, what that does to those people who voted perhaps for the first time ever in 2016? Now, I've voted many times in the past, and I've sometimes been on the losing side. And I've recognised that in those instances, my vote's not going to count. This time, I voted on the winning side, as did 17.4 million other people. And we are now being told that our vote doesn't count and will be ignored. I think we've seen nothing yet, uh, both in terms of what will happen over the next few weeks, but also the long-term implications of this for uh, democracy, liberty and freedom uh, in the UK. Well, it seems from an American standpoint that uh, Parliament has been almost passive-aggressive in the way that it's treated Boris Johnson and uh, Brexit as a whole for the last several years. They said that they wouldn't leave without a deal. Theresa May got a deal. The European Union said it's the only deal that will ever be on offer, and they voted the deal down. Uh, Jeremy Corbyn said that he would not vote for a general election until the deadline to leave the European Union had been extended past October 31st. Royal assent was given to that this week to move the deadline forward, and then the Labour Party refused to vote for a general election. So that our listeners understand, uh, what are the steps that Parliament has taken in order to assure that Brexit will not occur on October 31st? We don't yet quite know uh, what will happen on October the 31st and in the run-up to October the 31st. Uh, but what Parliament has done was firstly pass a piece of legislation, very oddly called the European Union Withdrawal Number 6 Bill, that's because there have been five previous attempts, which requires the Prime Minister of the United Kingdom uh, to write to the President of the European Union not later than the 19th of October in order to request a three-month extension to Brexit. In fact, uh, so concerned they were that Mr Johnson uh, might not wish to write the letter, they wrote it for him. So we have the most extraordinary situation, a piece of legislation on the statute book of the United Kingdom in which the legislature writes the letter that the prime minister, the executive, must send. So it's like Congress actually voting through the words that the president must use to write to uh, the government of uh, another country. It's quite extraordinary. With the connivance of Speaker Burko, the pro-EU majority in Parliament, which of course is one of the problems, uh, took control of the 
uh, order paper in order to overturn the normal process, which is that government business uh, takes precedence uh, in the order paper in Parliament and impose uh, the ability for uh, Parliament itself to pass its own legislation. The government has had the right to have precedence for its business in uh, Parliament. So all that was overturned, techniques were used that have never been used in this way before in order to achieve this new Act of Parliament. To begin with, the government sought to uh, resist this Act by mounting a filibuster in the House of Lords, and it was thought that the House of Lords might have to sit for 100 consecutive hours because pro-Brexit members of the House of Lords tabled over 100 amendments. And what happened in the end was that it was probably realised it wasn't going to work ultimately. And an agreement was reached that uh, if this bill was allowed to go onto the statute book, which it now is, then the Labour opposition uh, would agree to a general election on the 15th of October. Oh, guess what happened? The piece of legislation has gone onto the statute book and the Labour opposition changed their mind and voted down an election on the 15th of October. And so what we have is this piece of legislation that's dictating the very wording of the letter that the Prime Minister uh, is supposed to send to the President of the European Union not later than 19th of October, assuming, of course, no agreement is reached at the Council meeting on the 17th and 18th of October. Some of the relevant issues, of course, are uh, the Irish backstop, the, um, the potential division between Northern Ireland and the rest of the UK on regulation, uh, if no further agreement can be made. Uh, that was uh, Theresa May essentially uh, shoehorning the rest of the UK into the backstop, where if they couldn't come up with any additional concession from Brussels, which had no incentive to give any further concession, then all of the legislation that was passed in Brussels would continue to apply to the whole of the United Kingdom, not just Northern Ireland uh, in order to assure regulatory compliance. That sort of points the way to the fact that there's a great deal of economic and political liberty at stake. You characterised it very well in your question there, that if a deal with the European Union involves all or even some parts of the United Kingdom having to maintain regulatory alignment uh, with the EU, then what is the point of leaving at all? Uh, because the principal reason for seeking our independence from the European Union, yes, partially political, the issue of sovereignty, but it is also economic. Uh, actually, why should we have to maintain regulatory alignment uh, with the rules and regulations determined by uh, Brussels? Why should we not be able to negotiate, uh, perhaps with the American administration, a free trade arrangement that has different regulatory uh, requirements? Perhaps fewer and less uh, degree of regulation, allowing for a greater freedom of trade, allowing for a greater flow of goods and services between, in that example, the UK and the United States. And you replicate that across the world. Yes, it's not going to happen overnight. Yes, of course, uh, there will be uh, uh, some bumps uh, along the way moving from one system to another. But the Brussels establishment cannot stand the idea that regulation might be dismantled. Uh, their whole raison d'etre is regulation. Well, maybe what they really don't like is the possibility uh, of Britain pursuing free trade. 
It's rare that I quote Noam Chomsky, but he often says that uh, capitalist countries have crushed what he calls the threat of a good example. And you wonder if that isn't at work uh, in Brussels, particularly vis-a-vis a -vis post-Brexit UK. You know, Jeremy Corbyn seemed awfully keen to uh, run for a general election against Theresa May. Now that there's been a change at the uh, top of the Conservative Party ticket, it seems as though he's somewhat more reticent about uh, that political future. Boris Johnson has a much different approach both to Westminster and to Brussels. When uh, he was asked if he would extend the deadline for leaving the European Union, he said he would rather be dead in a ditch, quote-unquote, a very Churchillian sort of uh, crisp answer. There's some question about what exactly he can do, particularly with this sort of unprecedented legislation in which his letter is written for him. I realize it takes a crystal ball, but what are some of the steps that have been argued uh, he could take? I've heard everything from refusal to resignation to uh, running interference with the royal family. Well, I think the matter will end up in the courts. Um, what is not clear is what the courts will be asked uh, to decide. And what is also not clear, you will understand, is... What are the prospects of success in a court system where, to be honest, the overwhelming majority of judges would be pro-EU? Um, so there are a number of options. One suggestion uh, is that Boris writes the letter that he is required to write in law. So he would comply with the law in sending the letter as written, but he would add his own letter saying this is under duress and it is not the view of the government. That's a one uh, option. Another option is just to ignore it, not write it. Now, this is what would happen. Immediately, there'd be an application to the courts to uh, force Prime Minister Johnson, by way of injunction, to send that letter, that that injunction would be granted. The question then arises is, what if he continues to refuse? What are they going to do? Are they going to haul the Prime Minister of the United Kingdom before the Supreme Court and imprison him for contempt? That seems very unlikely. However, the political fallout in his own party would be extensive. So there's a third option, and that is to challenge the new law in the courts itself and to argue that it is not a properly constituted law and does not bind the Prime Minister. The reason that might be the case is a slightly arcane procedure, but it is basically written into the British law that the negotiation of international treaties, and what is this if it's not a negotiation of an international treaty, is a prerogative of the Queen and her government. In other words, it is not a matter for Parliament. And if Parliament passes a piece of legislation that infringes upon that prerogative, it is required in law for the government's consent to be given before that act is passed. Now, Speaker Burko ruled that this bill did not require that consent. Most legal opinion seems to be that it most certainly did. So I think it is quite likely we will see the government challenge this law in the courts, either before or after the European Council, and they will argue this is not a properly constituted law. It infringes upon the Queen's prerogative uh, for the negotiation of international treaties. And therefore, the prime minister is not bound by it. Now, there is one other option which I've been mulling over uh, this morning and I have not seen discussed extensively at all. Let us suppose Prime Minister Johnson goes to the European Council meeting, 17th and 18th of October, and fails to obtain an, an agreement that he can present to Parliament. 
I cannot see why he cannot then write on the same day, the 18th of October, not the 19th, and say, in the light of this, the UK is withdrawing its existing agreement to the extension lasting to the 31st of October. Great Britain and Northern Ireland will leave the EU at midnight on October the 19th. In other words, bring forward the date of departure. I'm not a lawyer. I'm sure lots of lawyers would say, well, you can't do that. That would be challenged, etc. But I was just mulling over that as a possibility. So much uncertainty. And yet uh, one thing that is certain is that lower taxes and free trade lead to human flourishing for the residents of the UK and for their new trading partners in hundreds of countries around the world in their post-Brexit future. The question is when that future will come to be the present. Reverend Richard Turnbull, director of the Center for Enterprise Markets and Ethics, Thank you for joining me. His website is thecemeorg Reverend Turnbull, thank you so much for joining us on Acton Live. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Father Ben. Uh, it was a pleasure to be with you. After giving false hope to millions, Theranos, the health technology company once valued at $9 billion, was exposed for marketing a fraudulent blood testing device and dissolved. Meanwhile, in the pursuit of profit, other businesses face accusations of spiking drug prices, polluting the environment, and implementing unjust pay scales that drive income inequality. These examples of bad business force us to ask, what does good business look like? What does it look like for a company to not just succeed and be profitable, but to do so in a moral way that benefits society? At the Acton Institute on October 16, Leading experts and accomplished business leaders will advance a global conversation on important topics like what is good business? What is the deeper meaning of work? How can companies do well while doing good? Join us for this event in Grand Rapids and register today at acton.org events. Today, I'm talking with Christopher Scalia, he is the eighth child of the late Justice Antonin Scalia and also the editor of a new book about his dad called On Faith, Lessons from an American Believer. Chris, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. Thanks a lot for having me. It's great to talk to you. So I recently finished the book and I loved it. It's easy to read and it's accessible. And I want to mention that you acted as the co-editor of this book, along with Ed Whalen, who clerked for your dad. Um, most of the opinions and speeches collected in this book, On Faith, they're also in another collection called Scalia Speaks. So I'm wondering what made you publish this shorter collection? Well, Scalia Speaks was a much bigger collection that touched on a kind of a broader range of topics. Um, there were a lot of speeches about uh, his ideas about the law in that collection, and he had the speeches about turkey hunting and hobbies and pastimes, things like that, Very various subject matters in that one. This collection is a lot more focused. Its, it's speeches are only about faith, and the court opinions, the excerpts from opinions we have here, are only about um, religion in, in American public life. Uh, and we wanted to make that, as you described, kind of concise and accessible collection just about religion because it was something he was actually working on um, before he passed away. He, uh, one of the stories that uh, an acquaintance of his shares in this collection um, is that uh, a few months before my father passed away, he spoke to this friend and kind of and mentioned he was working on a collection of, of speeches, his speeches about faith. 
and he sent this friend a collection, and the friend read through the collection or drafted the collection and gave some editorial suggestions and sent them back to my father just the day before my father passed away. So this was a collection that my, or something like this, was something my father had in mind shortly before he died. We expanded it a bit um, by including, well, for example, a a forward by Justice Thomas. Um, My brother has an introduction, and we also included my my brother, Father Paul Scalia, a Catholic priest, wrote the introduction, and also we included the funeral homily um, my, my brother delivered at my dad's funeral mass. And then short essays from friends and acquaintances and, and family members kind of describing what they observed about my dad's faith. So it, it's something along the lines of what my dad had in mind, but we wanted to expand it a little bit more as well. As you were putting the book together and going through all of your dad's opinions and speeches, was there anything um, that you noticed in the in the speeches and all the things, all the pieces that you collected for this book that jumped out at you about your dad that maybe you hadn't thought about before or just something that surprised you about your dad in the dissents that he wrote? Well, I think it's just kind of the 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 intensity that he, with which he approached a concern of his and particularly the cons- his concern that the Supreme Court was straying too far away from the founder's vision of what the role of religion should be in public life. And this is something he addressed in many of his opinions, including opinions we include in this collection, and many of his speeches as well. And that, in other words, the, since the 1960s in particular, the Supreme Court had um, strayed from a vision that in which um, religious denominations were treated kind of impartially to... Uh, the, the belief among justices that the U.S. government needed to be in, um, impartial be, between religion and irreligion. And my father argued that that was just kind of contrary to the founder's vision of, of the place in, uh, of religion in American public life. And so that, that's a topic he came back to again and again. So I was really, it didn't surprise me that he thought that way, but it really struck me how concerned he was that, um, if that vision prevailed, um, democracy itself was kind of undermined because the founders believed, and my father seemed to agree, that um, religion was an important source of virtue. Um, and to succeed, to really thrive and be healthy, democracy needed virtuous citizens. So if the Supreme Court kind of deprived public, the public the expressions of religion, um, then it kind of deprived the source of virtue. Well, later in our conversation, we will get back to that subject of the court. But I want to ask you a little bit more about your father's faith. Because at the beginning of the book, your brother jokes in this book that he winces when people describe your dad as a devout Catholic. What does he mean by that? Yeah. Well, it's not you know, obviously my brother knew that my, my father took his faith, faith seriously. But uh, Paul's point is that um, when somebody says, well, I'll read directly from my brother's introduction. Uh, Father, Father Paul Scalia writes, I always wince at that word, devout, which typically describes one who comes easily to his religious practice, prays peacefully, and speaks, speaks naturally about his faith. That wasn't my father. He was indeed a man of faith and in his own way devout. But like everything else in his life, his faith had something of an argument and contest about it. 
Um, and so what, what Paul means is that, you know, my father, my father liked argument and he liked, you know, he, there was something kind of argumentative, but also very rational about his religion, um, about his religion, his approach to Catholicism, which meant that, you know, he wasn't, you know, walking around with his hands folded all the time with it. He was devout, but not in kind of the stereotypical understanding of it. A better way of, of it might be kind of um, devoted more than devout. Justice Thomas also wrote in the foreword that your dad's faith was implicit in everything he did, but he also says that your dad didn't impose his faith on his judicial opinions. How did your father make those distinctions? How did he balance out his faith with the opinions that he wrote while on the court? Yeah, this is this is a point my father emphasized in a number of his speeches, um, and he would he would say this often to people or organizations who kind of embraced him in part because they uh, because of his opinions. He would still tell them, for example, to pro-life organizations, he would say, you know, for something like, thank you very much for having me and for recognizing my contributions. But if you're recognizing my contributions because you think I decide as I do because I'm Catholic, um, then I have to explain that you misunderstand what I do. I don't decide as I do in pro in, in abortion cases because the Catholic Church forbids abortion. I decide as I do in these cases because the Constitution is silent on matters of abortion. So, and my father would go on to explain that, you know, there's, he, he believed Roe v. Wade was a bad decision because there is no constitutional right to an abortion. If, on the other hand, the Constitution did provide clearly a right to an abortion, he would have to decide the other way. Um, so in that case, his religious belief um, kind of uh, coincided with, with his approach to the Constitution, but it was still separate from that. Um, and that, and that, my father's approach to the Constitution is known as originalism, interpreting it based on its original public meaning. And in other cases, that that might be contrary to 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 what the uh, church taught. For example, in the case of the death penalty. So, you know, my, this is something my my uh, this is something Justice Thomas says in the introduction, which is for my father, um, applying religion to the Constitution and imposing his religious or cultural or social or whatever political beliefs on the on the Constitution would in fact be violating the oath he took. And would and therefore be kind of um, uh, sacrilegious in, in that way, um, or irresponsible in that way. He had to a, a kind of separate his religious belief from his uh, from his judicial belief. In every case, he had to do that. Well, I'd like to talk a little bit more about your father's principled originalist reading of the Constitution. Also in the foreword, Justice Thomas wrote that quote: "Nino worked hard to get things right." The broad principles and the details of the law, grammar, syntax, and vocabulary. He was passionate about it all. All deserved and received his full attention. Justice Thomas goes on to write, I loved the eagerness and satisfaction in his voice when he finished a writing with which he was particularly pleased. He quotes uh, your dad saying, Clarence, you have got to hear this. It is really good. Um, unquote. So, you know, through so many opinions and especially dissents that your dad wrote, he really committed himself to the way that he 
uh, read the Constitution not as a living document, but as uh, he would say as a dead document that had uh, an enduring meaning. So what kept your dad so committed to these originalist principles? I think he, he just recognized, uh, I think, the, the wisdom of the founder's vision and, and particularly the separation of powers. Um, and, and those meant that uh, that separation of powers meant that judges, federal judges in the United States have very limited and circumscribed powers. Um, and so that meant he could not impose his personal beliefs. And if he did that, what he was essentially doing and what the, what the living constitution approach to jurisprudence does is usurp power from the people um, and give that power to unelected judges. Um, the, the founders, you read this in the Federalist Papers, the founders understood that the judicial branch cannot have a legislative function. And once it has a legislative function, because these are unelected judges, the, the legislative branch um, loses power. The people themselves lose power. People who, who defend the living constitution um, explained that, you know, it's a living, breathing document whose meaning changes with the times and has to, um, its kind of moral significance has to adapt to, to any given time. And my father would explain that, you know, that who is the arbiter of an, a time's morality? It certainly shouldn't be nine unelected judges. It should be the people themselves. And that's what the legislative branch is for. You know, and my, another thing, you, you reminded me of something else my father says in one of his speeches, is that um, there is no, um, there is, some jobs are, have kind of easy applications of, of your faith onto them. So uh, if you're, for example, a Catholic doctor, it's clear you cannot, for example, perform abortions. Um, but in the case of being a Catholic chef, or short order cook is the example he gave. There's no way to cook a Catholic hamburger, no Catholic way of doing that, except to do it as well as you can, to do it perfectly even. And my father had that same attitude towards judging. There's no Catholic way of interpreting the Constitution, of, inter of analyzing the history of a law, but there is a Catholic way of being a judge insofar as you do it perfectly. You do it as well as you can. And the hard work that Justice Thomas described there is, I think, how my father did that, demonstrated that kind of um, that pursuit of perfection. Um, he, the time he spent on these opinions and on specific cases and on the, the, you know, considering the briefs and analyzing the history and things like that, he was, he worked incredibly hard at it. And I saw mostly the writing end of it, just kind of the late hours he would spend at the study working on it. And, um, and that the story Justice Thomas tells of when my father would call him on the phone and kind of read a, read a sentence and then they would laugh about it together. It's especially, it's especially good hearing Justice Thomas hear that story because you can kind of uh, hear the friendliness and the warmth in his voice and his laugh when he tells that story. Are you hopeful that your dad's legacy, his commitment to reading the Constitution in the way that he did, will inspire future judges who are nominated to the court? I am. I'm pretty pretty optimistic about that. Um, I think that the two justices who've been nominated or appointed to the court since my father's passing, uh, Gorsuch and Kavanaugh, are both pretty good in that area. That doesn't mean they would, they'll always, you know... Um, 
rule in a way that I think my father would have, but they're, you know, originalists disagree occasionally. That's, that's just kind of the nature of originalism. Um, my, you know, contrary to popular belief, my father and Justice Thomas weren't on the same side of every case either. Um, and I think it's not just the Supreme Court justices, but it's also the, the uh, federal appointees. Uh, they've been the, the, the new judges on the federal bench over the past couple of years are pretty strong uh, textualists and originalists. And I think that's in large part because um, my father and other justices, including Justice Thomas and other professors and organizations, have done a really phenomenal job over the past 30 years of explaining what originalism means. Um, and that's why my father delivered as many speeches as he did. He knew that it was important to get out there and take the case explicitly to the people about why originalism was the, the kind of not, not a perfect form of jurisprudence, but the best form of jurisprudence out there. It was, it was an important cause to him that he took really you know, he didn't have a, a Twitter account, so he couldn't take it directly to the people that way. He, he delivered his speeches to do that. So my next question is a little unrelated to what we've been talking about, but I, I can't help but ask you about your dad's relationship with Ruth Bader Ginsburg. I find their relationship actually really touching. I've watched interviews where Ruth Bader Ginsburg tells the interviewer that she misses your dad every day, that there doesn't go a day where she doesn't think of your dad. And she uh, practically comes to tears when she talks about their friendship, that they both together really enjoyed good food and good wine, um, good music. They went to opera together. Can you speak a little bit about your dad's relationship with Ruth Bader Ginsburg and how they were able to reconcile that friendship in, in the midst of being on such polarizing opposite ends of the spectrum on the court? It is, uh, it is kind of an amazing friendship. And they had been friends uh, before they were on the Supreme Court. They were on, a, uh, they were on the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals together. So they had known each other for a very long time. Um, in, in Scalia Speaks, we, we include a roast he delivered to her on the 10th her 10th anniversary on the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals. So they weren't yet colleagues on the Supreme Court. Um, and it's a, it's a funny roast because he teases her a little bit, but it's also very moving because at the end he kind of reminisces about their time working together and how much he missed working with her. Um, and, of course, he didn't know that they would be colleagues again uh, really within a couple of years. So that, that friendship goes very far back, and I think you just identified a few of the reasons. Uh, you know, they had things in common. They didn't share politics. They didn't share religion, but they shared plenty of other things that helped them get along. Um, and I think she, she would say or she has said that only two people in her life really could consistently make her laugh. The first was her husband, Marty, and the other was my father. So I think she definitely appreciated his sense of humor. Um, and I should also add that uh, uh, her husband and my mother got along very well, uh, got along very well, too. So it wasn't just um, the two of them. It was just a kind of uh, all four of them got had shared a, a really close friendship and enjoyed being with each other. So they would have New Year's parties together all the time. And uh, you mentioned operas. And um, it was a, a pretty moving friendship that I think people especially appreciate now because it seems to, de to defy all logic and kind of um, sort of is kind of a nice contrast to the polarization we, we, uh, we see everywhere else. 
I think I remember your dad saying when he was asked about that friendship that he attacks ideas and not people. <laughs> There's so much yeah. we can learn from that right now. That's right. And and he added, and it just so happens that a very a lot of very good people have a lot of very bad ideas. <laughs> what do you think that people get wrong about your dad? Are there misconceptions that you hear a lot that bug you at all? Well, I mean, there are, there are kind of like basic uh, misrepresentations of specific cases, I think. But but more than that, it's just kind of the general idea that he um, just wanted to impose his own personal religious and uh, political beliefs when he when he ruled. And, you know, I, I think anybody who reads uh, his explanations, not just his opinions, but his, his personal speeches, um, would come away with a very different impression because uh, a lot of the time that's just not how it worked out. And a lot of his cases, like uh, the example he gave all the time was uh, a First Amendment case, a flag burning case from the late 80s in which my father was kind of the swing vote ruling that um, it was unconstitutional to prohibit the burning of the American flag. And my father explained that before up to him, him, he would... Uh, pass a law banning that, but it's not up to him. It's the First Amendment, clear, according to its original public meaning, clearly forbade such a law. So that's why he ruled as he did. That's the example he liked to give, but there are many others, especially in uh, Fourth and Fifth Amendment cases like, uh, you know, defendants' rights and uh, uh, search and seizure cases, where my father ruled in ways that would kind of uh, uh, go against his his probable own policy preferences. So I think that's kind of the most pernicious uh, misconception, which is that you know he was on the court just to just to uh, uh, promote his own his own view of social policy and religion. Unfortunately, we are running out of time, and I just have one last question for you. Um, of all the opinions in this book, of the um, speeches and the stories that are told, do you have a favorite entry? I think um, it's a really tough one. Uh, I think probably the best is um, the speech he delivers here uh, called uh, The Two Thomases. Um, Well, actually, we called it Not to the Wise, The Christian is Cretan, and he sometimes called it The Two Thomases. And in this speech, he... he, uh, he contrasts the attitudes of uh, one of his heroes, St. Thomas More, to the attitude of Thomas Jefferson. And his point was, was that these are both very learned people, very much of their age, some of, two of the most prominent people of their respective ages. Um, but they were very different. Um, they were, uh, Thomas More basically gave up his life in, in defense of his religious belief, and people thought he was crazy for doing so. Um, and on the other hand, Thomas Jefferson, obviously a very smart man, a very important man, but Jefferson uh, edited the, the New Testament, taking out all references to miracles and, you know, things that were impossible to believe, uh, because he was unable to reconcile reason and faith. Moore, on the other hand, was able to reconcile those two things. And my father looked to Moore as a kind of a role model of how Christians have to behave in a secular world, especially, and he would often deliver the speeches to lawyers and legal organizations because they would be looked at as strange as Thomas More was in their own times because, you know, they, what they believed 
um, in their faith was so at odds with the rest of the world and their legal training. And that was a father. That was a speech my father delivered pretty often, and um, I think it holds up uh, pretty strongly. Well, Chris, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. I had a great time talking with you. It's great speaking to you. Thanks a lot for having me on. Thank you so much for listening today. Here at Acton, our podcast team is working hard to make a great show for you every week, but I know that we couldn't do it without you. Help us make an even better podcast and reach us at actonline at acton.org. I respond to all of the emails and I read all of your feedback. It really matters to me. So please don't hesitate to reach out. Also, if you have any friends who you think would enjoy listening to Acton Line or learn more about the work that Acton Institute does, please share this podcast with them. You can subscribe to this podcast on the usual directories like iTunes and Google Play and Stitcher, but now we're even on Spotify and YouTube. So don't forget to check us out there. This episode is produced and edited by me, Caroline Roberts, with audio mixing by Doug Nagel.